Hello and welcome to another episode of the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We have some great stuff to talk about today, so let's get to it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. I had to grab this just for the title alone, but this Guardian article from Charlotte Graham McLay is called Like a Stephen King Movie, Feral Chickens Return to Plague New Zealand Village. <laughs> That's right. If you think you had it bad during the lockdown, perhaps you can spare a shred of sympathy for the residents of Titarangi, which is a suburb of fewer than 4,000 people. And as the article notes, about 20 to 30 feral chickens. (laughs) Wow. So that's not many. But if that, I mean, I can imagine if you got 20 or 30 birds working in coordination, like they're raptor descendants, they could do some damage. They can. And it's mostly because this is an issue that they've been dealing with for a while. So basically, this really all started in 2008 when a resident released two domesticated chickens in the village and they, quote, went rogue. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And so the flock's numbers obviously swelled in the years since, and there were as many at the peak in 2019 as uh, 250 feral chickens, which for a suburb of 4,000 people is is a lot, right? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So they're thinking that it was a combination of being sleep deprived and seeing the neighborhood wrecked that really engendered a lot of animosity towards these dear little animals. But the last straw came when the suburb was terrorized by a pestilence of rats that were, quote, the size of cats, and they were attracted by the food that had been left out for the birds. So once the rats really started coming by, the residents were like, okay, the chickens have got to go. And so what they had started doing was setting up large nets in different parts of the village. They rounded up about 230 of the birds. And then the plan was just send them off to this farm so they could live happily ever after. But then COVID happened. (laughs) And what that meant is that the birds who had escaped capture were the especially wily birds. And... (laughs) And so when people started to come out, because New Zealand has relaxed a lot of their standards, the chickens were back. (laughs) And they've basically traced this to, quote, a very kind-hearted local who feeds them and has kept feeding them. So the numbers have started to spike up again. (laughs) The end quote of this article is my favorite. As long as locals continue to feed the chickens, the menace would likely continue. Quote, I know who it is and I can't make her stop, he said. (laughs) I've tried. (laughs) That seems like, you know, one of those situations, like the the, the stereotype of the crazy cat lady, where it's like, you understand that this is causing a problem, but also you just can't bring yourself to do what would Mm -hmm. ultimately be better. But in the short term, it's like, yeah, they're going to go hungry. Yep. I mean, in Austin, at least on some of the conversations I've seen on Nextdoor, there are very similar things happening with pigeons, although I don't think those are attracting rats, or if they do, people Mm. are going to pay attention. Um, And coyotes, especially like there are some people because we live close to kind of one of the little nature preserves that are kind of sprinkled throughout Austin. I guess there are some coyote pups. Some people think that they might be puppies or I don't know what, but Hmm. there are some residents who continue to feed coyotes, which means that they keep coming out of the nature preserve and into where humans are and getting hit by cars or just menacing the other local wildlife, taking pets. So 
you know, it comes from a good place, but it's got to be with community consensus, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and coyote seems a little crazier to me as well, because like you said, they can eat other pets and they've even like mm-hmm. attacked kids sometimes if they get brave. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. They, uh... But the, the chickens are definitely a nuisance, at least with, quote, their raucous clucking, which is depriving <laughs> residents of sleep. <laughs> That's true. If you're going to make me choose between my kid or never sleeping again, I don't know. I might. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, have you ever heard the apparently infamous story of the mutiny aboard the Skylab space station? I have not, but it made me think of C-Lab, and I know we're talking about <laughs> different areas of the stratosphere here. So so what's this about? Well, so uh, the Skylab space station went up in the 70s, and apparently there is this somewhat infamous story of a mutiny where the astronauts stopped communicating with ground control and refused to obey their commands for Whoa. approximately an hour and a half. Why? So this article from astronomy.com basically digs into that story and finds out what really happened. Skylab was kind of a weird project from the beginning. We had the Apollo program, and we got all the way up to Apollo 17, and basically interest was waning, funding got cut, and they had three more planned missions, Apollo 18, 19, and 20, that were all just scrapped. Mm. But they had all this leftover equipment, because these programs take years to ramp up, Mm -hmm. and so they took the leftover equipment and turned it into the Apollo Applications Program which was just sort of a roundtable to try to figure out how can we use some of this equipment that we already have built. And one of the things they looked at was a massive fuel tank. And they said, you know, we could turn this into a living space for astronauts. We could shoot it up on our very last Saturn V lunar rocket and make it basically a space station where we could go do scientific experiments. Nice. Okay. So in May of 1973, they did that. It was called Skylab. Skylab 1 was the mission to actually send it up into space and get it into orbit. Skylab 2, they shot astronauts up to the space station, and they basically spent the entire 28 days they were up there repairing the damage that Skylab had sustained during its launch. Mm. And then Skylab 3 was the first real mission where they started doing experiments and doing what the space station was supposed to be doing. And it was a huge success. Oh, nice. They had sent up three veteran astronauts. They spent 59 days up there just doing experiment after experiment. And by the end, they had kind of gotten into this groove and they were so productive that they were running out of things to do and kind of demanding Uh. more tasks. (laughs) Well, isn't that sort of an admirable quality that you want from your people that are very expensive to ship up and back? And NASA was very pleased, as you might expect. So Skylab 4, there were high expectations, and this was the famous mutinied expedition. Ah. They went up in November of 1973. One of the first initial mistakes that they made was all three of the astronauts who went up were rookies. None of them had been in space before. And NASA, unfortunately, had these inflated expectations from the veterans on Skylab 3, and they expected the productivity of these rookies to match the end of the mission productivity of the veterans. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's a project management issue for sure. Exactly. So right off the bat, they had them scheduled down to the minute. They had them eating while they were working. They gave them shorter than normal sleep breaks. And they basically <gasps> gave them no bathroom breaks. That was oh, like, no. just didn't even plan for that. <laughs> and then in addition to that, one of the rookies developed space adaptation syndrome. Which is kind of what you would expect. Basically, your body is just not cool with this perpetual zero gravity situation. And it includes nausea and vomiting, as you might expect. But it also, if it gets really bad, can include illusions and (gasps) loss of knowledge of limb position. 
So, like, it's just full-on, you know, hallucinating confusion, not able to do any of your work because you're barely able to stay awake. Um, Yeah, that'll cut into productivity. Yeah, exactly. And they also had done just dumb things with the schedule where, like, they had scheduled exercise immediately after meals. So everyone was nauseous, even the guys who were not suffering. (laughs) Like, it was just a really poorly planned exercise, like you said. And according to one astronaut, you know, it was getting a lot tougher. They said if you missed something, if you made a mistake and had to go back and do it again, you'd end up racing the clock and making more mistakes, screwing up more on an experiment, and in general, just digging a deeper hole for yourself. And he admits, we began to get a little testy, you know, (laughs) because ground control, they're they're military. You know, they're basically sitting there going, do this. Well, you failed. Now catch up. You know, they didn't really like the emotional content of the instructions that they were getting. Right, right. So... (sighs) That brought them to the supposed mutiny. For 90 minutes, the crew just simply did not answer ground control. Somebody was supposed to be monitoring the comms 24 hours. So this was an issue. Uh And apparently somehow, like, word of it leaked out. Already the journalists were on board, like, it's a mutiny. There's a big problem. NASA lost control. (laughs) And eventually they did reestablish contact. And the science pilot on board, Edward Gibson, he says it really wasn't a mutiny. It was just a genuine mistake over who was supposed to be manning the comm connection. And basically they were all asleep. Like, they just (laughs) were too tired and they couldn't keep it up. And whether it was insubordination or not, it was a big problem. You can't Mm -hmm. not communicate. Everybody was very worried. So they had a big heart-to-heart between space and ground that lasted several orbits. All the experiments went on hold while they kind of tried to reconnect with each other through interstellar therapy. And and so NASA, you know, they said, you know what, we've been too harsh. We're going to reduce the demands. We're going to let you guys kind of catch up. Hopefully that one guy will stop puking all the time. And ultimately, the crew did become more productive by the end. And Mm -hmm. NASA fully admitted the lead flight director, he said it was clearly a case of the control center not recognizing that people need some zero G adjustment time before they can really be productive. Yeah. And one of the good things is it did actually result in some changes to NASA's protocol. They had a brand new policy from then on of no all rookie teams. Every Mm -hmm. astronaut team that goes up has to have at least one veteran. All teams are given a little bit of ramp up time to adjust before any kind of scheduled expectations begin. Mm -hmm. And They sort of go through training on open communication of problems early on so that it doesn't spiral out of control. Right. You know, and the article notes that realistically, no astronauts could ever genuinely mutiny because they depend on the calculations from the ground control to re-enter the atmosphere. So it's it's a very self-defeating action to take. (laughs) Right. But it also shows that when things get to that point, stuff is messed up and there needs to be a fix for sure. Very much so. I'm, I like to imagine like just these two burly, tearful military flight guys just going like, man, you just got to listen to me. And like, <laughs> right. Or pouting with their arms crossed, just That's not right. going to do it. <laughs> you can't make me run this experiment. <laughs> next link. Next link. So next link comes from Archaeology and Arts. And this is about an entire Roman city that has been revealed without any digging. So basically, there's this new technology called Advanced Ground Penetrating Radar, or GPR, which just kind of uses sonar above ground to map things that are deep underground so that you can get a sense of what's there in really, really higher resolution than ever before without Mm -hmm. doing any digging. And so this was a team from the University of Cambridge and Ghent University. They've discovered a bath complex, a market, a temple, and even Mm. the city's sprawling network of water pipes. So by looking at different depths, they can basically study not just the town, but how the town evolved over hundreds of years. Oh, so like they can tell which parts are older and which parts are newer. 
Yeah, they've been able to kind of just see how these things are arranged in relation to each other as well. And this may have major implications for how we study ancient cities going forward, because a lot of them can't be excavated either because they're too big or sometimes they're just trapped under new modern structures. Yeah, I, I wouldn't appreciate it if they were like, hey, there's a cool thing underneath your house. We're going to have to bulldoze it. Like that's- <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Or like major government institutions or sports arenas. I mean, it would just be a nightmare. But the way mm-hmm. that GPR works is kind of like regular radar. So it bounces radio waves off of objects, and it uses this echo to build up a picture at different depths. And so what these scientists did is they towed these GPR instruments behind a quad bike. And this new town is basically just under half the size of Pompeii, which is pretty massive, right? Yeah. It's located 50 kilometers north of Rome, and it was first occupied in 241 BC. And it basically shows that it survived into the medieval period. So it was first occupied in 241 BC, and then kind of ended around AD 700. And so the data that they found shows some of the physical changes that were experienced by the city during this time. They also show that the temple, market building, and bath complex are more architecturally elaborate than would usually be expected in a small city. It's always fascinating, I think, to hear about these towns that are, you know, 800 plus years old, not just in the past, but like they lasted that long. Because mm-hmm. I, I, they have some things like that in Europe, but then occasionally I kind of remind myself, like, our entire country is only, you know, barely 300 years old. Right. <laughs> like right. none of our cities are even close to 800 plus years old. And I, I always remember there was a specific history TV show or podcast or something I was listening to a long time ago that was talking about a historical nation. And they said, you know, it was under the control of so-and-so for this entire period, save for a brief 250-year rebellion. And at the time I was brief. like, if, if Britain somehow came back and took us over, the entirety of America would be a brief 250-year rebellion. Like that, it's, it's I would just be a nervous whole about, different timescale. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little shy about you actually speaking that into being <laughs> In case the universe is listening, because I'm not sure that's really going to solve what we've got going on. But conditions are right, man. That's Oof. right. I don't know. I don't know that Britain's doing any better than we are right now. I think we're safe. Super fair. <laughs> Super fair. At least from them, right? Who knows what's right. going to happen with China and Russia? But that's anyway, right. about the dig, uh, they found this large, these large structures that are facing each other, and they've got this what's called a porticus duplex, which is a covered passageway with central rows of columns. So right now they're thinking this was some kind of public monument or some kind of sacred landscape. But Hmm. um, we're still discovering new things buried underneath the earth. That's always what they fall back on, right? When they don't know what something is, they're like, oh, it was sacred. This was used (laughs) in some sort of religious ritual. Like, maybe not. Maybe it was just like, you know, a marionette theater. Like, you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or something just like tied to everyday hygiene that's far less romantic, but still useful. Who knows? That's right. We can't say for sure. Mm-mm. But maybe someday, maybe we'll actually maybe. get in there and there'll be a whole list of instructions that said, this is what we use this for. Don't get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or please do not dig this up. This contains an ancient curse. That's and right. we warned you. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one comes from Wired. It has a very ominous title. Plastic rain is the new acid rain. Oh, do you uh, you remember the uh, the the hype around acid rain? Probably you know oh, yeah. thirty years ago, I guess. Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. suspect some of our listeners may not have been uh, instructed about acid rain when they were in school. The idea of acid rain, of course, was it was the combination of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide emissions. And the way we solved it was they installed scrubbers on the power plants for the SO two and catalytic converters on cars to sort of block up nitrogen oxide. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, as the title implies, there is a problem with plastic. And unlike acid rain, there really is no way to filter out or stop 
the plastic that is already there or that is continually getting into the environment because plastic doesn't, it breaks down into smaller pieces, but it never really stops being plastic. And what you have now are microplastics, which is by definition anything less than five millimeters, but many of them are microscopic. They're these little itty bitty fibers and hairs that just get swept into the air and they're light enough to float on wind currents. They get into the ocean and they travel for thousands of miles on the currents. And this is all coming out of a new study in the journal Science where some researchers collected rain and air samples over 14 months, specifically on federally protected land in the U.S., like the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, of all of the places we have, these should be the cleanest, right? Right. And uh, unfortunately, no. They calculated that a thousand metric tons of microplastic falls every year on these (gasps) protected lands, which they said is equivalent to 120 million plastic water bottles. And and that's just the protected land. That's 6% of all of American oh. soil. So you can Oof. imagine it is clearly much worse in all the cities. Oh. And they note that even, you know, despite knowing this, plastic waste is still going up. It's 260 million tons a year right now, and they expect it to be 460 million tons by 2030. So, I mean, it's, it's skyrocketing unless we just suddenly all agree to stop using plastic. And even if we did... It's all still in the environment, what we've already put out there. So, right, right. This I is know a- that they've experimented with different, like, fungi or possibly modified earthworms that mm-hmm. have been shown to actually process and break down plastic. Although, who knows what those fungi could turn into if they're fed right. all of this, like, <laughs> microplastic that we have. But, oh, that's disheartening. Yeah. Well, and they note, like you said, we're going to have to have a solution along those lines. It's going to have to be something yeah. that genuinely addresses the problem because. Even, you know, we try to make these changes in our lives, like using reusable plastic water bottles and not throwing stuff away as much. But they said that actually 60 to 70 percent of the material they collected was microfibers from polyester clothing. Oh, like, no. E- I mean, even the clothes that we wear are basically made of plastic these days. Yeah. Uh, and they said, you know, it aside from just contaminating the environment, it actually changes the climate. Many of these particles are so small that they become condensation nuclei for rain, just like a piece of dust would which changes the cloud and the rain patterns in certain areas distinctly and measurably. Uh, And they've said that it it can be carried on the wind so far that plastic from cities in Europe has been found in the Arctic. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Yeah. And and just in case that wasn't enough, it also can alter the thermal properties of soil. You know, when you mix a bunch of plastic into the soil, it changes how well it stores heat, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is very important for climate. And it also affects the poor little animals. Uh, They've found that hermit crabs who have been exposed to microplastics will struggle to choose a new shell as they grow. You know, they kind of famously have that everybody moves up a shell and Uh they just get confused when there's plastics in their environment. Somehow it kind of neurologically affects them and they can't do it right. Uh, Hermit crabs. It blocks the digestive tracts of worms. Everybody's breathing it in all the time. We don't even know how that's affecting them. So it's not a a happy article. (laughs) It's basically uh, we're all kind of screwed. And unless we come up with, like you said, a radical solution that involves genuinely breaking these plastics down, not just into small pieces, but into their component chemicals that we can then hopefully deal with on their own, there really doesn't seem to be a way around it. Well, I'm glad there at least seems to be more mainstream awareness and mobilization towards divesting at least away from more personal use of plastic. But Mm -hmm. there are some cases where, you know, it still is more convenient, certainly more affordable. The long lasting properties are something that can be desirable in certain cases, but oceans. Yeah, poor oceans. (laughs) We we got to appreciate them for a while and then... (laughs) 
<laughs> in another 40, 50 years, they'll be like like a semi-solid kind of sludge. Like it, <laughs> it won't be liquid anymore. It'll be like those, uh, oh gosh, what are the, uh, the non-Newtonian fluids. You know what I'm yes. talking about? Like the cornstarch things where you slap them really hard. You could run across the ocean as long as you kept moving fast enough. <laughs> I mean, that that spells some interesting opportunities for the Olympics in That's right. two, dec- two centuries, right? <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, I'm going to keep it here in the oceans a little bit from this Reuters article by Maurice Tammen. Pandemic offers scientists unprecedented chance to hear oceans as they once were. So a little bit of lemons and lemonade. We may not be able to solve the plastic issue anytime soon. But about 11 years ago, there was an environmental scientist named Jesse Asubel who posed a question in a commencement speech and basically said, what if we could record the sounds of the ocean in the days before propeller-driven ships and boats were super widespread? Mm -hmm. And they were basically thinking, like, maybe we could have a year of a quiet ocean, knowing that, you know, we would never have a year of all water stuff stopping. But maybe maybe a month or maybe just a few hours. And it was really a pipe dream. But there were a lot of curious scientists who were like, yeah, that would be cool if we did this. And so they basically, in 2015, published a plan on how they would conduct an international quiet ocean experiment if the opportunity ever presented itself. Right. lo and behold, we had the economic slowdown with COVID which meant all of these types of big boats started to anchor and they were like, this is our chance. So they mobilized. And yeah, last jump month, on it. Yep. They basically cobbled together about 130 underwater hydrophone listening stations, including six wow. stations that had been set up to monitor underwater nuclear tests. Oh. So, you know, they're careful to note that they're not excited that COVID happened, but they are happy to take advantage of the scientific opportunity in order to maybe get a never before glimpse of the ocean with very little human interference. So it's kind of almost like looking at the night sky if there was like a global blackout, basically. Well, and And it's kind of a recurring theme, I think, with a lot of our articles that you don't always know where science is going to take you. And -hmm. sometimes you have to sort of plan not having any idea if you'll ever get it right. Like they mm-hmm. had they had a plan five years ago of this is how we would do it. These are the exactly. listening stations. And so they were ready to go when the opportunity arose. Yeah. And what they've done is they've already noted that there's some research that suggests that large whales have actually adapted to man-made noises by raising their voices in their pitch. Huh. In other words, because we've made the ocean so noisy, a lot of wildlife has effectively had to learn to like speak in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> And, and there's some speculation that some species have moved to quieter regions of the world so they can find food and each other a little bit more easily. But in general, what this experiment's going to look at is to see if whales and other sea mammals have adapted to quieter oceans by lowering their volume again or communicating more efficiently or shifting their habitat to see if any of these other hypotheses can, pardon the pun, hold any water. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's good for them, though, because if they do, sw- like, it's this isn't going to last forever. They're just going to have to switch back if they revert to their quieter voices. Yeah, and and the researchers are kind of already planning for that. So it won't be until the end of the year that they, you know, they're gathering all these recordings. They're very dataful. And so there's going to, it's going to take them a while to actually get through them. But they're mm-hmm. really hoping to kind of like wrap it up quickly and take advantage of, of, you know, the quiet time that we have, especially as some of the countries are starting to reopen and get things back on track. That's right. Well, and it gives the, the scientists something to do. I mean, if some of them have been furloughed because their experiments can't go forth, at least now they have something else to Absolutely. collect data for. That's right. That's right. Lemons out of lemonade, even if it's just a drop. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one comes from Sam Jones at The Guardian, and it's got a, a suitably exciting title. Spanish archaeologist sentenced for faking Basque finds. 
Oh, and, no. Yeah, this this actually happened all the way back in 2006, but the court case has just sort of finally wrapped up and gotten all of its stuff together. Basically, in the, the Roman city of Vallea, which is near the Basque city of Vitoria in Spain, was underground. It's been a dig site for a while. And one of the archaeologists working on it in 2006 presented some amazing finds. His name was Eliseo Gill, and he supposedly found pieces of third century pottery that had been engraved with one of the first depictions of the crucified Christ, along with Egyptian hieroglyphics. So like having both of those things together was sort of a really amazing cultural thing, had it been Mm -hmm. real. And (laughs) he also found some that had Basque words that predated the earliest known written examples of the language by 600 years. So being an archaeologist, he sort of knew what fake finds would be the coolest and uh, Ah. get him the most attention. Mm -hmm. And it was a full year before an expert committee really kind of got around to examining them and saying, hold on, (laughs) there are some really big problems with some of these pieces. And I shouldn't really have complimented his knowledge as an archaeologist because the errors that he made are just grotesque. Oh, no. They said they found some pieces of modern glue on this supposed pottery. That some of the scratchings in the writings referred to non-existent gods and, even worse, to the 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, who obviously would not have been alive at that time. (laughs) Uh, They said that the crucifixion scene bore the abbreviation R.I.P., which at the time would have called into question Christ's resurrection and divinity, and they never would have done that. That's just not part of it. Uh, And they said, you know, the name of the Roman god Jupiter was spelled with a J, which back then the letter did not exist. All Roman words with the J sound started with an I. And (laughs) it was just sort of a mess. And one professor of prehistory in Madrid said, how has something like this been taken seriously for so long? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, they caught him and he was brought up on fraud charges in Spain. Both Eliseo Gill and his collaborator Ruben Serdan, they were found guilty. They were fined 12,500 euros. Serdan was sentenced to 15 months in prison and Gill was sentenced to two years and three months. Oh, my gosh. Neither one of them is probably actually going to prison because apparently a little part of Spanish law says that if a defendant has no prior convictions... Any sentence under two years is automatically suspended unless and until they screw up again. Uh, And while Gil's total was over two years, it was actually multiple convictions that were each under two years. And so they all sort of count as under two years. And uh, there was a third collaborator, Oscar Escribano, and he took a plea deal, which I think implies that he testified against the other two, for a one-year sentence and an undisclosed fine. Nonetheless, even up to the end, he insisted it was nothing more than a joke. Uh, Which, you know, can't you take a joke? Where's your sense of humor? (laughs) Yeah. And and I suppose that does kind of get them out of the question of how was this so bad? Like maybe (laughs) they thought of, well, people will obviously realize it's bad. But then why would you spend so much energy on what is, quote unquote, a joke? It just, you know, (laughs) maybe there was like a YouTube video that they were planning for this. No. <laughs> Hopefully they've learned their lesson and uh, maybe they can use some of the underground uh, radar stuff next time instead and won't have to <laughs> dig up their nonsense. What, that's right. It would have saved everybody a bit of heartache, right? That's right. <laughs> and a lot of money. <laughs> next link. Next link. This next link comes from The Star by Alex Boyd. This incredibly white grizzly has emerged in Banff. Why experts hope you never see it. It feels like a bit of a fluff piece, but... There was a white grizzly bear that was spotted in Banff in Canada. 
And they're extremely rare, right? You get polar bears in the Arctic and the right. West Coast has, you know, spirit bears, but they're usually a variant of black bears and their numbers are estimated to be in the low hundreds. But in the Rockies, grizzlies are almost always brown and black. And so they've basically known that this is a three-year-old that left its mother last spring. We still don't know if it's male or female, but someone who is not associated with wildlife preservation or the parks <laughs> caught it just because people will often do road trips through Canada sure. and pull over when they see bears and things like that. When they saw the white bear, they put it on social media. And now this bear is kind of a celebrity that has gotten a lot of conservation efforts a little bit nervous specifically because of that. <laughs> right. If everyone comes up to take a picture of it, they're going to ruin it. Yeah, exactly. Park officials have already encountered tourists who have been pulling over on the side of the Trans-Canada Highway who are looking for a glimpse of this very special white grizzly bear. Like, for example, Kim Titchener, who's president of Bear Safety and More Incorporated, uh, which I have not Googled, <laughs> but I'm very curious to know what their uh, business model looks like. Yeah, what's the more? Fact... Like, a bear right. safety, I get. What's beyond that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to Google it to find out. Yeah. But they basically also do, they teach courses on bear and white wildlife safety. So maybe maybe that's kind of what that's they're the into. More. But yeah, right. <laughs> that's the more. But you know, they're a little frustrated that it had to be Banff. Her quote is, of all the things to happen and of all the places it had to be Banff, where four million people visit every year, like really? <laughs> <laughs> And so they're trying to get really clear on this messaging for anybody who hopefully is receptive to listen. Do not seek out the bear. And if by chance you happen to see it, just give it space because they have a problem where tourists can crowd animals mm -hmm. and stopped cars are also an issue just for traffic. But all this attention from humans can really dramatically impact bear behavior and whether or not they're going to be safe in terms of where they look around. So let's say you've got a lot of people who are packed around a bear. It can be really hard for them to move around or find food, especially if they're just creating lines over boundaries that they would normally cross to look mm -hmm. for food, right? Yeah. And it also sets bears up for basically confrontations, which could be really, really dangerous and, yeah. you know, sadly result in even the bear getting destroyed. Mm -hmm. There's a an author, Sarah L. Melgley, who is the author of the book, What Bears Teach Us. And, and it looks at human-bear interaction from the ursine perspective. And she had some really great quotes. She, she wrote, I mean, I get it. I am a bear biologist and I am super interested in viewing this white grizzly bear. It's a rare animal. But I think as a society, we need to recognize that sometimes our drive to view wildlife is driven by a selfish need to take a photo, post it to social media, or even just to share with friends and family to say we saw it. Yeah, like I think that's really the urge that is the most destructive is not just, you know, it's on YouTube. You can go see the video now if you want. But people don't want that. People want to be the one who posted the video, right? Exactly. And, and so, so that, yeah. yeah, that whole drive to be like, I want to be the one who broke it or I want to get these likes and these views. It's creating these things that they call bear jams, where basically <laughs> someone spots a bear, they pull over, cars see a car pull over, and right, then you'll have they... dozens of cars, not only people trying to snap photos, but some will even try to approach the animal because once you've gotten close and you've seen it, you got to escalate. You got to get those views yeah. or whatever dumb things people are doing. People are Dumb. Yeah, like worst case scenario, the bear attacks somebody and then they're going to have to destroy it. Even in the best case scenario, now the bear is like, oh, people are safe and they're always around. I can walk out into the road because the cars won't hit me. I don't need to find food because these people are going to feed me, which is going to mm -hmm. put it in a position to not be able to take care of itself. Exactly. Or it just becomes a lot more bold into going to human type environments because yeah. that's the food that they've been used to because I'm sure these tourists are just dropping garbage, you mm -hmm. know. So they don't know if this is a, like a traditional albinism gene or what made this bear white. Like, is it just 
Has it ever been heard of before? They said it's incredibly rare, which implies there's some sort of precedence right. that this has happened before. It doesn't, they've got a picture of the bear. I mean, everyone's grabbing pictures of the dang thing now, too. And it has a black nose. It doesn't have like okay, kind of a yeah. pinkish chicken nose. So it just seems like it is just a super rare color combination. And mm-hmm. mostly this article is just focusing on leave the bears alone yeah, and especially leave out. this bear alone. Yeah, in particular, <laughs> leave it alone. There's another added wrinkle to this. There was a local Facebook page for the area that they call the Bow Valley Network. And they held a contest on Facebook in May to give the bear a name. Uh-huh. And they eventually settled on the name Nakoda, which means friend in the language of the Stony Nakoda, which are the indigenous people <clears throat> removed from the park after its creation, as uh. the article very diplomatically states. Yeah. Um, and there's a complication because when you name a bear, it's kind of like an elite club, right? Bears that have been given names by the community. <laughs> Usually they just give numbers to bears that they're handling. And from a conservation perspective, when you have, quote unquote, celebrity bears or bears that have been named, sometimes that can help visitors understand them better or it can give people a way to view their behavior in confusingly human terms. Mm-hmm. For example, they've got these current celebrity bears. There's one named The Boss. He's a mm-hmm. 300 kilogram man known for his, quote, size and virility. And there's another celebrity. (laughs) Yeah. The the article notes he has fathered several other furry Banff dwellers. Okay, so they do know. That's a, that's a, okay. (laughs) It's it's a, you know, they they gave him that name. It's Mm -hmm. charged with some interesting patriarchal connotations. But anyway, (laughs) they've also got another one named Split Lip. He made headlines for occasionally eating rival bears. (laughs) And so when you name a bear, you know, with something that's kind of got like a gangster name, Mm -hmm. Split Lip, and then, you know, the like, oh, this guy's known for eating other bears. This could possibly feed a reputation as a nefarious figure, which, you know, can hamper conservation efforts because if anyone encounters him, they may be tempted to trap or even kill and mm-hmm. then taxidermy this famous bear just for the accolades. Yeah. <laughs> People are terrible. (laughs) Yeah, so leave the bears alone. Don't get into any bear jams and, you know, just... (laughs) Bear jamborees, yes. Bear jams, no. (laughs) (laughs) Robotic jamborees only. Let's be careful. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, this next article from Mel Magazine asks a uh, very important, but I think under-asked question. When did orange juice become a morning beverage? Like, why? Mm. Why do we drink orange juice in the morning? It's and... pure sugar. Like, right. it's <laughs> yes, that's supposed that's to be the it. worst thing to do in the morning is have anything loaded with sugar because it gets you on that insulin spike and crash roller coaster from the very get-go. And then you're just fighting that the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and so, but like a lot of other juices have that same issue. Why is mm-hmm. it that like the part of this complete breakfast image always has orange juice? You know, you don't yeah, ever talk about... Yeah, and not apple juice yeah. or grape juice, for yeah. God's sake. So this article goes into it, and basically their conclusion is, of course, it's marketing. Like milk, America produces a lot of oranges domestically. We're actually Mm -hmm. second in global orange production. And back when, in the 1920s and 30s, when they were kind of trying to boost the American economy, they honed in early on these supposed benefits of vitamin C, right? And Mm. so like a 1929 Sunkist ad said, Estelle seemed to lack vitality, didn't even make an effort to be entertaining. Hence, she did not attract the men. (laughs) And then it got sciencey. It said acidosis is the word on almost every modern physician's tongue. Uh, And it should be noted that acidosis is not a real diagnosis. It's sort of a imagined idea where 
the pH of the body is too acidic from too much meat and bread, right? So they were encouraging more fruits and vegetables, which is kind of good. And at the time, of course, they're trying to save money because oranges are cheaper than meat. And they were trying to ration for the finished Mm. First World War and the upcoming Second World War. But if you really want to get into it, there are a ton of foods that have more vitamin C than an orange. Uh, The article (laughs) listed quite a few. Guava, pineapple, strawberries, kiwi, mango, papaya, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kale, bell peppers, and chili peppers, all higher in vitamin C per serving. So, yeah, even as someone who sort of is like, "Eh, I know that any sort of vitamin promotional thing in a commercial is a lie. Even Mm -hmm. then, hearing that list, I was like, oh, wow, that's unbelievable that we've sort of... Cauliflower? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All of the sort of cruciferous vegetables. So like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts are all in the same family. And they all have a ton of vitamin C in them. And of course, people don't want to eat broccoli and cauliflower, but they Mm -hmm. could eat pineapple and strawberries. But America doesn't grow those. And so they they yeah. kind of honed in on the on the orange and just said, this is the thing that we're going to get everybody drinking. And ironically, at the time, soldiers overseas did actually have a shortage of vitamin C. But the military, oh. being the military, they said, no, we're not going to ship oranges or orange juice. We're just going to give you little powdered vitamin C packets and you're going to like it. And that's what they did for a long time. But they found that soldiers wouldn't take them. Basically, they were like, this is gross. You can't make me. And still at that point, shipping liquid juice overseas was too heavy and too expensive. So that's what sort of spurred the research into making juice from concentrate, right? Mm. And the from concentrate process was not actually perfected until 1948. So it didn't come in time to be useful for the World War II. But having figured it out, it kind of exploded the market. Because even though when you actually, again, look at the data, processed, pasteurized, concentrated, reconstituted orange juice ruins a lot of the taste and reduces the vitamin C content. (laughs) Uh, But it preserves all that sweet, sweet sugar. That's right. And they found the best way to still keep those vitamin C talking points is basically to add vitamin C back into the orange juice after (laughs) they've destroyed all the vitamin C with processing. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. Ultimately, they sort of say, you know, this all explains why we drink orange juice, certainly. As for why it's a breakfast food as opposed to another food, they don't really have any ideas. There's some kind of psychological theories about the idea of citrus is stimulating in the morning. So people sort of feel like it's waking them up a little bit. But Mm. mostly it's just the sugar. They, Mm -hmm. They note that one glass of orange juice contains your sugar content for the whole day. So it's uh, it's not good. You should not be drinking so much fruit juice. And part of, you know, (laughs) eating oranges is still quite good because the orange has fiber in it. And that both slows the absorption of the glucose. It gives you that full feeling. Fiber is good for you. Mm -hmm. It's only when you start crushing these things into juices because a glass of juice is usually like five or six servings of whole fruit because you have to crush it. Like, I mean, if you've ever juiced a lemon, you see how little juice comes out of it and you throw this big chunk of everything else away. And that's true of oranges. It's just a huge, huge waste. You're throwing away all that good fiber that people need to eat and you're jacking yourself up on the sugar juice. Boo hiss. Yeah. I always found orange juice in the morning always gave me an upset stomach. I don't, yeah, I don't it's, like it's high acid. I can't believe this was ever marketed as something to balance the acidity because right. <laughs> maybe I just don't understand how biology works, but you would think you'd want something maybe more base to, you know, neutralize that. I right. Well, and there That's is crazy. there is some stuff behind that where certain acidic foods react with your stomach acid and leave what's called an alkaline ash. So basically, oh. even though it's acidic, the end result of the chemical reaction in your stomach is a more basic mm. pH. 
But okay. even that doesn't justify like, hey, maybe just eat some vegetables and then you wouldn't yeah. have to worry about it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, uh, you know, go have some uh, pineapple if you want. And, and opt for the full fruit instead of yeah. the juice extraction whenever possible. That's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you've joined us. Some of the articles that we did not get to this week include how many people did it take to build the Great Pyramid? the dark history of America's first female terrorist group, and the case for ending all traffic stops. And as someone who has been pulled over, I uh, would like that. I think we should Amen. end all traffic stops. I don't even need to read the article. I'm on board. Um, <laughs> if you want to keep us going and keep us on the air, we do a lot of hard work and we really appreciate your donations. You can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.